Hello, and welcome to the show Gold Squadron Gays. It's the podcast where two Star Wars-loving gays break down each episode of their favorite Star Wars TV shows, while also being gay as hell. I'm your host, Bradley Brower. I'm your other host, Charles Rogers, and you're all welcome for uh, getting Bob Chapek fired. That was me. I am claiming sole credit for that, and none <laughs> of you can technically disprove me. <laughs> Not technically, no. Um, I was I was telling Bradley before we hit record uh, that I was I, I went to Disneyland for my birthday over the weekend. Uh, so I was sitting in the train in the Disneyland park that like there's a train that like rings the park or it like rings the park kind of, but it like dips through it at one point. Anyway, I'm on that train when we got the news that JPEG had gotten suddenly <laughs> fired, <laughs> which is funny because we had just spent two days complaining about how much worse the parks were getting. So I'm choosing to believe uh, that when we started complaining about it in the parks, the mouse heard us and convened an emergency board meeting and fired JPEG to appease me personally a random Star Wars podcaster on the internet. But by that logic, wouldn't it, the parks be bad because he's no longer working for the parks? He's the CEO. He can't focus on the parks anymore. So by that logic, the only reason why it's bad is because he's not in charge. He was in charge of the parks before he became CEO. And also, I'm not qualified to explain the, the <laughs> Disneyland park side of things. Um, I have only just accepted that I have been converted to Disneylandism, uh, which thank you, Chris. Because you live in California. Because I live in Cal, it's because I live in California, and I'm an hour away from the parks. Right, and I can just go a couple whenever of times. You feel a like year. It. Whenever <laughs> my 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 money feels like it, whenever my bank account feels like it. You know, it's so funny because so I I grew up in Florida, and I, I'm so sorry. I used to think like back in the day, like it, or it's weird to think like now, but like if I had grown up in Florida, even more so, because I moved away like towards you know sixth grade or something like that. So I don't really consider like Florida like my childhood anymore like you know Atlanta is kind of like where I've been since then and so it's weird to think about like what if I had done the Disney pro college program or what if I had grown up in Florida because then I would have gone to Disney every single day yeah especially in Orlando like I would have been there all the time because it's only well technically I lived about three hours away but still even then that's like still worth it <laughs> right yeah we're we're only like an hour away and I know that the Disney college program is very popular with twinks very very popular. I yeah, I could totally see you ha having done that if you know. had grown up closer and you had more of a chance to like go to the park. I definitely probably would have uh, sucked some dick a lot earlier in my life <laughs> when I got <laughs> to Disney College program. Well, like I said, the Disney College program is very popular with twinks. <laughs> you know what else is popular with twinks, Bradley? Uh, all, of Mon all of Please. Mon Mothma's outfits in this show. I was like, please tell me how you're going to bridge these two things. But okay, I'm going to segue. I don't know, man. These segues look are they're either hit or they're miss. Right. Uh, Mon Mothma's outfits, however, have been a solid miss. Fuck me. Why did I just say that? They've been a solid hit. I was like, wait a minute. That's Fuck the antithesis no. of your whole entire point. Yeah, that was the twist I was going to reveal secretly at the end of this that actually I've hated every outfit she's worn. Um, it was all a front. 
No. <laughs> Christ. <laughs> oh, we are so off it. It's because you're back in your room. It, it is. That's exactly it's what it is. It's because I'm seeing off. the wall of your fucking color-coordinated Pokemon Funko Pop shelf with your giant Funko Charizard. Yep. That's what's throwing me off, is I'm seeing Charizard hovering ominously over your shoulder. Uh, I also see my favorite Pokemon over your shoulder, so that is distracting me mm. as well. I'll let the audience speculate on which one is my favorite. They don't care that much. Anyway, <laughs> Mon Mothma's outfits. She wears two this episode. Uh, one of them I'm going to get to uh, when we get to it. Uh, but the other one that she wears when they're leaving the party, absolutely fantastic. And not only is it fantastic, it's, it's versatile as a costume. Because her, she's not just wearing it, she's interacting with it. And that's an impressive piece of costuming because she it has to look good in every position that it's in, but she also has to interact when she like removes the chain and she opens it up to like let herself breathe a little bit because she's about to do a thing that again we're gonna get to in the episode. It's just the costume design on this is so good, not just because all of her outfits the entire show have been stunning, but each one of them has said something about the context in which she's wearing it and has allowed the actress to perform form within that costume to bring the character to life. That concludes the final Mon Mothma minute, which have mainly just turned into me gushing about every single outfit she wears. I like it. Well, maybe, you know what? Maybe we'll give you a bonus Mothma minute in our recap of maybe. the whole entire season. Maybe. There you go. Well, because she's only going to wear like one out, one or two outfits after she books it. She doesn't pack all of these outfits with her. <laughs> That's the problem. This week, we're talking about Andor episode. Episode 12 titled Rick's Road. Cassian returns home to Ferex, a tinderbox that is experiencing a spark of rebellion. Charles, what is one thing you liked about this episode and one thing you did not? Uh, they go hand in hand. Um, my thing that I liked is I liked how most of the storylines converged on this one moment. Uh, I liked that basically everything that we've been seeing with Deidre, with Cassian, with Bix, Cyril, Luthen, uh, Velencenta, all of it correlate like converges is the word I'm looking for around this one single moment. I like how how this episode really does feel like the payoff to the 11 episodes that have preceded it. Um, slightly controversial opinion. I'm going to shock you and the audience, but my thing I didn't like, and I don't know how they would have fixed it. You notice I said most of the storylines converge on this moment. Mon Mothma's story arc in this episode, her two scenes, feel extremely disconnected from the rest of the episode because they're the only one well the three of them there's the one in the isb but even that one kind of tied a little bit back in because deidre's in it but the mon mothma ones specifically don't really feel like they tie in and really her storyline overall as a whole with the exception of aldani throwing things into a little bit of chaos wasn't really affected by cassian as much as the rest of the storylines were and I think I, I wish that the events of what's happening on Ferex somehow would have tied in more directly to her storyline. And it's really good stuff and I really like it, but I, I felt like it was disconnected from the rest of the episode. What about you, Bradley? One thing you liked and one thing you did not. Um, I'm going to agree with you on the did not like. I, I definitely think the Mon Mothma scenes just felt disconnected from the episode. I mean, not that they were bad by any means, but they were just disconnected because this truly was, you know, the rebellion episode. We knew that was going to happen. Um, but 
it felt like they didn't tie her in closely enough or the, even the themes of her parts just didn't seem to connect with rebellion in general anyway. It just kind of seemed like, uh, well, we have to give you this part of her story real quick because that's where we are in her story. Like, it, let's, I don't know. Let's, it, resolve, let's resolve the banking thing. Right, yeah. It was kind even of that thematically like kind of ties in, but like not really. You know, I would also argue that you could even have used honestly just that scene where she introduces her daughter or whatever the banker guy's son like that could have just been the end of that one episode where he even introduces that idea you know what i mean like you could have just slotted that in as like the end of one of those other episodes and then given her a different plot this episode because i just felt like it was a little random anyway that's what i didn't like but um one thing i did like though however was honestly the same thing i i loved how all the different people slowly converged in the same kind of general area and really we got to see them all be affected slightly different by the events that were going on in this episode and it was really nice especially seeing you know Deidre and Cyril kind of come together and then even we'll um, talk about that scene because I have a lot of mixed feelings about no but I really like that too I I just love I just loved all that stuff so and I apologize now um (laughs) I'm either going to have very long descriptions of all the scenes because they're so short and I just lumped them all together or I've gotten used to it the Ferex stuff I just kind of lumped together because it's just a lot happening but here we go we begin on Ferex with Wilman Pack working on some kind of device Deidre lands at the spaceport escorted by death troopers meanwhile Brasso is informed that Cassian is aware of Marva's death and may come to the funeral a disguised Deidre and Korv walk the streets of Ferex with Sinta following closely and at a bar Nurchi and Zan discuss the impact of Marva's death on Cassian. Elsewhere, Wilman Pack completes and activates his mysterious device. Did you actually think the device was mysterious or did you pick up no. immediately on what was happening? Oh, I no, I, I I just did that for dramatic effect. I knew it was a bomb. Uh, the it's, second, a, it's a fucking bomb, yeah. The second I saw him working on it, I think it, even in the first bit, I kind of knew that's what was happening. Like even the first second of the shot of him just working on like the circuit board of it. And we have no idea because he's just working on the circuit board. I mean, he does work in, you know, kind of spare parts and stuff like that, salvage and stuff. So it wouldn't be that weird to see him working on a machine. But for for some reason in my brain i just knew like oh he's building a bomb like i just and it, it starts to come together like when you start to see his face and you start to see like that he's looking at the image of his dad who got hanged by the imperials mm-hmm. and like oh yeah you start putting together even before like one of the last shots the bomb is designed to look like a real actual bomb uh and there's one of the last shots really really hammers that home even before you get to that shot i'd be surprised if people didn't figure out but what i i think is interesting about this sequence and the directing choice that benjamin karen makes uh in this is to have wilman building the bomb intercut metaphorically with the pieces maneuvering into place that are going to start kickstart the events which are eventually going to blow up and we're seeing wilman assembling his explosive while another explosive more metaphorical explosive is being assembled right the show is too good (laughs) oh yeah no this episode in general was just like a tension building up until the final like essentially 
the bomb like is kind yeah, of where the, it really the yeah. second things like it's it's a powder keg and that's what this whole show has been that's what the first three episodes were it's just building right. and building and building up till things finally and that's like the overall like message of the show is things are going to build and they're going to build and they're going to build and if you keep pushing things are going to explode and it, it's not going to be a good time for anyone involved in it but it's a thing that needs to happen yeah death troopers are here Woo! Death well, Troopers! I knew we were going to see them because uh, What's-His-Face um, always has them. Uh, Director Krennic always has them. So I just yes. assumed for some reason, you know what? Deidre needs to have some. Why not? Uh, in fairness, the shot of her walking out of the Lambda-class shuttle, uh, which are my fav- one of my favorite Star Wars ships, uh, is the Lambda-class shuttle. Her walking out flanked with the Death Troopers, uh, that, that is in fact an extremely sexy shot. Very sexy. It was like, the- I was very happy with that i was very pleased with that shot yeah we we've seen death troopers with uh krennic we've seen them with thrawn uh they're like the special forces troopers uh, which it's it's funny because the whole series started with just like random mall cop security guys and now they've got imperial special forces here and over the course of the series it's escalated to that point right uh my only other note for this section is uh Nurchi sucks and i hate him you know I, I i wasn't actually that surprised when we saw that too because i was like you know what there has to be all there always has to be that one person who's only thinking of themselves and we got that a little bit in the aldani arc and now we're just seeing it on a more personal level because i don't know if this guy necessarily is like he it's not that he doesn't like cassian it's just that like cassian's kind of like an annoyance right because oh he didn't pay me my money back but then if now it's kind of more just oh well i know shit's about to go down so I want to take care of myself so I don't die is basically what he's doing. Yeah, I think that it's it's important that, you know, he winds up inside, that he winds up inside the, the barracks where he thinks he will be safe. And that is precisely the wrong place to be, as it turns out. But he thought that literally that sheltering in that building with the Empire would give him safety. And that is the thing that gets him killed. Ultimately, I, I think what's interesting about it is that he's an opportunist uh and we see even through the early parts of the episode where he sees Zanwan and brasso talking to each other and then he goes and gets zan drunk so that he can confirm that cassian's gonna be there and so he's already setting up his own moves to profit from this uh but also he sucks and i hate him on coruscant mon mothma waits patiently for her husband in the car on the way home, they discuss parents' gambling issues while being secretly listened to by their driver. We'll get to those gambling issues in a second here. Uh, <laughs> I have a story about this. Uh, but I do want to note early in the scene, Perrin walks out of the party, brings his drink with him, <laughs> and just gets in the limo with his drink in his hand. As one should. And like I'm having like my college days flashback of getting in the taxi with the drink still in your hand yeah you can't waste a good drink so exactly i'm gonna take it with me take it with me uh okay so bradley i i have to ask uh do you actually think that perrin is gambling again (sighs) what's your read on this scene before i get too into this i don't know i'm kind of torn right because like i feel like he makes a good point but also she makes a good point like I I don't know it's like it's hard to tell like whether or not like they this is like a true issue in their marriage 
like, oh, he actually has gambling problems. Or if this is like he said, like, oh, they're just trying to find something to get me with because they're going after you, which logically makes sense. But I think he's gaslighting her. I think he genuinely does have a gambling problem. So I I took this scene at face value when I first okay. watched it. The very first time I watched it, I took the scene at face value and I was like, okay, she's confronting him about gambling problems because you learned that he talked to Davos Golden. Okay, this is a weird scene to put here. I don't know why this scene is here. And then I thought about it. And then I remembered all the way back in episode four, she tells Luthen that her driver is an ISB plant. It's a very quick line all the way back in episode four. Right. But then, and then I started thinking, why is she doing this here? Why is she having this conversation here? Why wouldn't she wait and have this conversation privately if she's actually concerned about her gam- his gambling debts? And then I realized, no, she's throwing him under the bus. She is having this argument with him where Cloris can hear so that Cloris will take this back to the ISB and the ISB will be like, oh, that must be why all their money is weird right now. That must be where the disappearing money went to. So then I spoke to Claire, who was our guest on episode four, and it was like, hey, Claire, fellow Mon Mothma obsessionist, is this also your read on the scene? And they were like, oh, yeah, no, absolutely, 100%. Here's the punchline. I watched this episode with my boyfriend last night. He immediately clocked this is what was going on, like embarrassingly fast for me. He's like, oh, yeah, no, he's she's throwing him under the bus. Uh, She's going to make the ISB think that all the weird financial stuff. So when he gets really this is the first time we've ever seen Perrin get mad in the show. Right. He has never gotten really angry or really passionate or done anything to drop his like carefree, like everything's fine. He gets really mad about this. He's like, we will turn this fucking car around. We will go back to the party. We will talk to whoever it is saying this. She's like, I don't want to talk to anybody because nobody actually told her this. Right. So this is the first bit of Perrin actually being really upset because it's the first thing Mon has ever accused him of that he didn't do. I see. But clearly there was some... Clearly there are issues. Right. Which is why she picked it. Right. Who's going to know this better than her? Right. She already knows that he's had issues. So it's real easy for her to throw him under the bus. Who are people going to believe? I like it. So that's the purpose of this scene is she's just absolutely tossed him under the bus. And he's not the only person she will toss under the bus before this episode is out. But when he's when he says, you know, people are are trying to take you down by coming after me, that is a very important line. Because, yeah, that kind of is what the ISB is now thinking to do. They're going to focus their attention on Perrin because they think Perrin is the vulnerable one. But Mon also knows that Perrin isn't actually doing this stuff. So the ISB isn't going to dig up that much dirt on Perrin. It's it's really kind of twisted what she does here, but it it is the best solution to her problem. It's also very complex for this show. Like, it's like... Very complex for this show. Yeah. I had to sit there and think about it. And, and that's also what I love about it. Because when I realized that's what was going on, I was like, oh, this is brilliant. And then my fucking boyfriend re- realizes it immediately. And I'm like, I'm so <laughs> fucking embarrassed right now. I hate that you were correct about this. And then like Mon's face at the end of the scene after she does this and she's like, 
having to calm herself down from this kind of fake but not really argument because some of the things she's saying like how much you know I've been shamed enough for one night etc etc kind of feel like they're coming from an actual genuine place of frustration I don't know there's a lot going on in this scene I have I have many feelings about this scene Honestly, this is like when I was watching, you know, all the Mon Mothma scenes, it almost makes you feel like, why isn't this a separate show? Like, <laughs> it's like, why isn't the Mon Mothma show separate from the Andor show? I want to see like just an ISB Mothma show where she's just dodging the cops all the time. Oh, uh, I, I think it'll make more sense in season two. I think thematically it ties in very well to everything that's going on. I think that showing Mon, you know, as a, a ca- Mon story is a counterbalance to Cassian's thematically you know both of their journeys this episode are about them kind of doing the thing they need to do in order to take the next step in their growth as a rebel cassian's choice being at the end you know basically going and offering himself to luthan and saying you know either remove the loose end or let me join the fight and then mon's kind of being a slightly less noble okay i'm gonna start throwing people under the bus to protect my role in the rebellion and these are sacrifices that i have to make now when the whole whole show she didn't want to do that she was trying to avoid anyone getting hurt and now because if she tried to work so hard to avoid getting anyone hurt now she has to sacrifice the people who are the closest to her again i have many feelings about these scenes and they are some of the shortest most disconnected scenes in the episode right and they just have the most meat on Ferrix, Vel meets with Cinta and tells her about the ISB agent she is watching and how his boss has shown up. Meanwhile, Cassian walks the streets and flashes back to his father. He then climbs into Bix's scrapyard and is confronted by Hounds and his old friend Pelga, who reveals Bix has been captured. Later, Cassian listens to Nemec's manifesto. Meanwhile, Deidre and team discuss the funeral for Marva and their plans to capture Andor. I do think come away from the window may be the gayest thing that visual media (laughs) Star Wars has ever done. They basically were trying to do the whole come back to bed, but like trying to be subtle about it. (laughs) Oh, no, 100 percent. They they, they banged it out. Um, Yeah, 100 percent. And I love that for them. 100 percent that's it well because the whole thing with with valencia that's been set up but isn't ever resolved in this episode is that and it'll come to a head you know later on in the episode is that vel is very committed to the idea of the rebellion Santa is very committed to doing rebel things right and so they work well together in this because vel is kind of having to pull Santa metaphorically away from the window because we see without vel sid is just throwing herself into her work she didn't have anything else but also that 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 line is just a beautiful beautiful gay moment uh and we are here for it personally Flem gives us this, this thesis statement of sort of the series as a whole uh when he talks about how no one ever looks down when they should and if they do they only see the rust which i think is uh it's important and i also make a note that clem is the one dispensing this wisdom because we'll come back to that uh but i like these little this little flashback yeah it it was weird at first because i was like they don't do too many flashbacks in this show and when they do they're supposed to be very important you know and um i don't know it was just nice to see him flashback to his father although i thought it would was weird because i thought the theme of the episode was more about marva you know so i don't know why they chose to do a flashback of 
um, Clem instead of a flashback of Marva possibly doing something similar to this, right? It could have been either or. I guess it doesn't really matter which, you know, parent they chose. I, it just would have been interesting if they had chosen Marva instead, just to give her A, more screen time, and then B, just because the whole entire point of this episode is that she is the start of the rebellion. Well, I think it's twofold. I think number one is that it Clem is a lot more down to earth of a guy. Like he's hands in the dirt kind of. Uh, and Marv is very much not that. Uh, and I do think it is important that we see sort of Clem dispensing that wisdom. And we spend, because two of the episodes is going to be, you know, Clem dispensing wisdom and then Marva dispensing wisdom. It's, it's sort of a last lesson from Cassian's parents to him. I think the other reason is we maybe don't want to take away from uh, the absolutely kick-ass Marva moment that happens later on in this episode. Uh, so true. I, I guess think she gets her moment. He she gets, gets her moment. moment. Yeah. Clem gets his moment. And again, it will make sense, but I think it is important that it is Clem who is dead who is discussing this piece of wisdom. Actually, they're both dead and they're both discussing wisdom. They're both dead and they're both discussing... Yeah, put a pen in that because we're going to come back to that idea. Yeah, Pegla's back and turned out to be relatively important to the last episode. You know, I, I guess that's, what they, that's like the theme of this episode is like, let's take people who were in the beginning of the show and let's bring them all back. And Because remember we said... Um, said no vetch. Yeah, we said... Vetch goes well, far away, apparently. Right. But, you know, we, we did say that Nurchi, we were like, I wonder what if they're going to ever bring him back or why was that just like a one-off character? And turns out he's not. This is, <laughs> so this is why. This is yeah, why. There you go. I, so I get to binge this show next week to prepare mm-hmm. for our retrospective. I am so fucking excited to dedicate an entire day to just binge watching this shit. Yeah, this one's going to be really weird to watch all at once because I said, you know, before we're, we were only getting those small arcs and now we get to watch it all at once. It's going to be really cool. Like, I don't know. It's, it's definitely going to be a different experience this time around. Yeah, I'm very excited to do it because I always get to binge watch shows and I usually like them better on the binge watch like Obi-Wan Kenobi. I loved, but I liked it even more when I binge watched it. Uh, Book of Boba Fett, I did not love. And when I sat down and binge watched it, I actually did really like it. So I'm excited to sit down and bench watch this one, especially too, because for like people like us, right? I watch the episodes two to three times the week that they air. So I become intimately familiar with who's who. But like somebody who's just watching the show, Nurchi is introduced in one scene in episode, I think one or two, and then get doesn't get brought up again until the finale. So I would be curious if somebody who doesn't have brain rot, (laughs) what that experience of watching the show is like for them. Well, I mean, the casual viewer, uh, you know, what's funny is I was when I was watching this and Pelga showed up, I almost didn't know who he was at first until like they showed the dogs or the the Corellian hounds or whatever. And I was like, oh, it's the same guy from the space yard or whatever. And it was weird because he's wearing a different outfit or he doesn't have his like hood on or his hat or whatever he was wearing in the first episode. So it was confusing. And then I was like, oh, it's the same guy. I can't imagine a casual viewer thinking that's the same person or like even remembering that he was in the show. <laughs> yeah, I'd be very, I should have asked my boyfriend. He's He's gone to work now, unfortunately. Um, so I can't ask him, but I should have asked him if he remembers who uh, Zan and Pegla are right from the early episodes. Hmm. I also think it's really, really interesting that they're they're going to sell Bix's place because nobody actually thinks she's coming back. So I I wonder like are they also selling Marva's place? Like who 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 owns these places now? <laughs> like I don't understand how uh, it works. That's a good question. Uh Marva's oof, that is a good question. It feels like there's a strong community like presence here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bix's shop is 
like a shop uh there i imagine they're gonna sell it uh somebody's gonna probably front the money to get the place back up and running and i imagine they would want it to be a local ferrix resident who would take it over ideally but i think the more interesting thing is the fact that they are going to sell it in the first place which means not only do they not think bix is coming back uh they have somebody has basically seized control of the place like the municipal government of ferrix has seized control of the place and basically determined yeah no officially legally bix is not coming back she's gone into that hotel she's never coming out she's done we're just gonna sell her place speaking of dead people dispensing wisdom rice nimic speech i i'm sure you have a whole many podcast dedicated to breaking speeches. it down <laughs> no like Again, it was one of those things I started writing down on my favorite lines and then I stopped because I had to, I was, was just writing the whole speech down. Like, the imperial need for control is so desperate because it's unnatural. It requires constant effort. Where do you get off on writing this stuff? Yeah, and how old was he again? Like, that's like, how, when do you learn getting all this wisdom from? <laughs> well, he's like the er, like, teenage revolutionary who's like writing his manifesto about how like freedom is a pure idea and i'm like nimic stop <laughs> stop it you don't have to make me feel and then having having alex lothar actually narrate it is an inspired choice because yep. he, he's the only speech giver who is not actually on screen and he gives one of the best speeches I, I particularly noted the the line at the end uh, where he says to to try because I was thinking about Jen's speech in Rogue One where she's like we're gonna take all the chances you know we take we'll take this chance in the next one and the next one until the chances are until we've won or the chances are spent and I'm like what this is is this is homophobia uh, against me specifically <laughs> this is an attack on me personally. Oh, yeah. Yes, this is directly to make me cry. And I've watched this episode three times <laughs> and it's worked three times. <sighs> it was. This show really is just like intro to revolutionary political theory. I wonder if like colleges will use any of these scenes or any of these like speeches or dialogues or anything like that in like teachings or lectures or something. I'd be, I, I'd be curious. I 100% would. If I was teaching about like revolutionary politics and and revolutionary like ideas, the Nimic speech in particular would be one that I would 100% use. Uh also like Marva's later on in the episode is another one that's really really good. This show has so many grand speeches and they're all excellent. And they're all written by different people, which is really interesting because <laughs> we're getting them in different episodes. And it's yeah, just... Bo Willimon wrote uh, Luthens, and and now um, Tony Gilroy wrote Nemix and Marvas. There you go. Uh, my final note for this section is that I want to bring up uh, Deidre's need to control the situation, mm -hmm. where she's come in and she like. She both needs to micromanage it so that it gets done the way she wants, but also she clearly doesn't trust any of her guys to set it up. So she has set up this situation exactly the way she wants it, which will be relevant later that Deidre was the one who has specifically created the conditions under which this is taking place. And we see her giving these orders out to people. 
And that is important to keep in mind. The ISB headquarters on Coruscant, Officer Blevin meets with Cloris, Mon Mothma's driver, and discusses her activities. But they are interrupted by another officer who lets them know that there are updates on the Krieger operation. Partagaz informs the team that Krieger's group was killed and the case is closed. Deidre on Comlink is not satisfied with the operation, but Partagaz tells her to focus on capturing Axis. Shout out to Nicholas Bertel's score again, because it still rules. Like, later on, I was reading like an interview today, and they were talking about how the the funeral scene, the score that's for the funeral scene, that he started writing that like two years before they shot the scene. Like, this man was like, I'm gonna make this space TV show my fucking magnum opus. I have do, no idea what that means. Do you know what a magnum opus is? Uh, not even, not a clue. It's like your masterwork. It's like your uh, masterpiece. Okay, okay. Got it. It's like the definitive thing that defines your whole career. Usually at the <laughs> oh. end of your career. It's like a period on the end of the, the sentence of your entire body of artistic work. Oh, wow. Okay. That's that's what that means. Uh, yeah, the score rules is my point. Uh, I We do see in this scene that like, they are they are noticing that there's some weird financial stuff with Mon's account, uh, but Mon has now graciously provided them an explanation, and the ISB just accepts it. Yeah, they're like, without eh, I guess. I mean, I guess he has problems. Like, yeah, good of an explanation <laughs> as any. Right. Even the ISB thinks Perrin Firtha is a piece of shit. Yeah, they're like, Ugh, I mean, I, I mean, yeah, it kind of makes sense that her husband's a piece of shit. So yeah, I guess I believe yeah. it. Do you believe that it? Tracks. Yeah. That tracks. That tracks. That tracks. <laughs> uh, I like that we don't actually see the Krieger raid. We haven't been seeing any of the Krieger stuff, really. None of it. Yeah. And I like and that this whole thing happens. I mentioned in the previous episode when they captured the pilot that a lesser show would have like cut away to show all this and cluttered it up. But it's not about the Krieger raid. It The Krieger raid informs what's happening in this side of the plot. And I really like that we're only getting parts of that through this this storyline. The other thing to keep in mind here, this bit where Deidre is talking to Partagaz and Partagaz is like, yeah, this is not a dialogue. We did this so the Emperor will get off our backs about that Aldani thing. And Deidre, he plays on Deidre's like need to prove herself. Because that's the thing, she needs to be in control of the situation, which is gonna lead to problems but we also understand why because she really needs a win she really needs to give them access so it's this great like multifaceted character where we understand where she's coming from even if the things she's doing are bad back on ferrix luthan arrives to town isb agent corv realizes he's not following cassian elsewhere pelga arranges for cassian to meet with brasso where he gives him a message from marva brasso also reveals where the empire is holding bix and cassian heads to save her meanwhile cyril arrives on ferrix with linus moss it's uh it's brasso that he thinks he's following not cassian why would he be following Brasso? Because he's been watching Marva's house. No. It, because it's a different guy that doesn't look like Brasso. He's what? been watching he's been watching the house for like three episodes. He's been watching Brasso come and go. I didn't catch that. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> I definitely didn't catch that. Yeah, because the guy comes out and it, it's not Brasso, but he's wearing Brasso's clothes and B2's following him. And Cord's like, God damn it. 
Oh, Where you know what? That's Brasso, weird. Because Brasso went down into the, yeah. Oh, you know what? That's funny. Because I, I maybe I just wasn't analyzing it that closely because I maybe I thought it was Brasso for a second. Because <laughs> oh I was like, God. he's wearing the same colors and everything. So yeah, you know what? I'm just like Corv. I was. Yeah, that, you're, you're Corv. That's, <laughs> that's your problem is your Corv. I'm dead. That's funny. You will be later in this episode. Oh, shut up. Uh, once again, Brasso is a real one. The the perfect man. I an unreasonable standard for men. He's I love this man so much. Like this is not my type, right? Physically, this man is not my type. I'm not like a mean mug kind of guy. Like <laughs> coal uh, miner kind of guy. Coal miner kind of guy. Like blue collar kind of kind of rough and and tumble kind of guy. Um, if Brusso asked me to marry him, I would do it in a heartbeat. (laughs) This man is like the most loyal, kind. I love this man so much. He is amazing. And the way he delivers like Marva's like final words to Cassian, where clearly he spent a lot of time with Marva because he starts mimicking the way that Fiona Shaw talks as Marva. So you can kind of hear Marva in his words. Bruss is just so good. There's one line in particular uh, that I, I want to bring up from this scene with um, with Cassian and, and Brasso. And that's the line, tell him I love him more than anything he could ever do wrong. That, that line hurt me deeply on an emotional level. And I just had to point out that that was the point in the episode where I had to curl up into a little ball and think about my life choices. Because, damn, the writing in the show is too good. Too good. It's too good. Too good for Star Wars fan. It's just too good in general. <laughs> I don't know what we did to deserve this show. I mean, clearly, like we said in previous episodes, they're looking for an Emmy on this. Like... They, they, they deserve all the Emmy. It is fucking insane to me that we have had all this prestige TV. And then Star Wars was like, hey, do y'all want this goofy little show about one character from one movie who dies at the end of it? Like, I think it's so interesting that we went from why does anyone care about Andor? To, I swear to God, if we don't get more Andor, I will start a riot at a funeral. Like, the turnaround in 10 weeks since we started seeing Andor from no one cares about this to I care about this so hard is astounding. It is astounding because I I flash back to a little bit when we were doing covering Kenobi and you know Kathleen Kennedy said like hey we're only going to do this story if we think it's a good idea and looking back on it also Kenobi was kind of a bad idea too right like it was like oh we probably shouldn't touch this character because it's too complicated or it's just not something people will be interested in right now and then right. they go ahead and it's do it. It's just a victory lap it's just we're gonna yeah. throw a thing like on paper it's it's not a good idea no because it's like oh it's it's just bringing these actors back to parade them in front of the no they turned it into something like really emotional and really like something that elevated those characters to something okay. new and they took a bunch of interesting risks with it but Andor in particular I know that a lot of people in my neck of the woods so I I talk to this may come as a surprise to people but I do talk to a lot of people who are not Star Wars fans and I actually know a lot of people who don't like the Disney era stuff who 
really are vocal about the fact that they think the sequels are bad. Uh, they think the TV is not very good. All of that stuff. Uh, I have not heard a single, single person who has watched Andor say anything less than this is one of the best shows on TV. And I don't know how this happened. I don't know. I, I can't explain it. I mean, it's... They yeah, gave it's it just, to good writers is what yeah, happened. That's exactly all it is. It's It just it goes to show you what good writing can do for any subject matter. Like, you just have to have good writing. And I also think it speaks to, you know, Kathleen Kennedy was talking about how part of the brand pivot that they want to do is they want to move away from the Skywalker saga. They want to move away from stories that are are super connected. And I think the other thing is Andor kind of came out of nowhere and surprised people with the fact that this is a show from beginning to end that doesn't connect in. This is a show about these people that's using the trappings of the universe to tell its own story. And even something like The Mandalorian ultimately tied a little too closely to what they were doing before. The purpose of the Mandalorian is to, to bridge the gap between Return of the Jedi and The Force Awakens. Whereas Andor is just off doing its own thing. Like, yeah, it's nominally tied into Rogue One uh, and Mon Mothma is here, but it's it's not that tied into the Skywalker saga. And I think right. between that and the High Republic, a lot of the different initiatives are trying to like move away from the mainline Skywalker saga for a little bit. And I also think that's part of the reason that it's been so successful. And I hope that's a lesson that Lucasfilm takes from it is that if you tell good stories in the trappings of the universe, you don't have to put a bunch of cameos in it. You don't have to deep fake Mark Hamill to make people care about your show. Right. In fact, if you make your show good and you don't put those things in there, you will specifically drive away the type of people who make videos about how bad your content is. Which is another thing I've been noticing. Uh, a whole lot of really, really unpleasant YouTubers are starting to uh, make Star Wars content again now that they don't have to cover Andor. Hmm. Just noticing that. Interesting. Just noticing when y'all y'all timed your return to making Star Wars content after you swore it off for conveniently 11 weeks. I see you. You're not listening to the show, but I see you. Meanwhile, Cassian makes his way to Bix while stormtroopers are patrolling the streets. Luthen meets with Vel to discuss the plan to assassinate Cassian. Suddenly, the time grappler signifies to the town that the beginning of the funeral has started. Musicians begin to play music as the people gather in the street, leaving the Empire confused and scrambling to get riot gear and barriers ready. I think it's an interesting choice to have the anvil start early. I think that it's a nice contrast to the scene to like the whole this is what a reckoning sounds like mm. speech that Marvin yep. gives uh in episode three. However, that's all like poetic and thematic, uh yada yada yada. I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about how when they cut to the marching band warming up, I about fucking died laughing because I am a former band kid. Oh god. I am a band kid and that absolutely delighted me. You know, for some reason, I knew you were going to like freak out when I, you saw a flute player come out and a drummer and all this stuff. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, yep. yeah. It looks like it looks like, too, because that's the music. We'll, we'll get to it in, in my next note when you move on to the next section. But the music is diegetic. Yep. They are actually playing those instruments. And if you look closely, 
you can tell what instrument that is. Some of them have, most of them have flutes. It's flutes and drums and, and a couple of other things. But if you look really closely, you can tell what some of them are. That they've gone and specified like a flute, which is really fucking funny to me. Yeah, because it's like, how do you change, you know, how do you change any kind of instrument to make it Star Wars-y, but then also believable that it's making the sounds that it's making? Is You can't change it too much because then we'll be like, why does it look like the instruments from How the Grinch Stole Christmas? Like, you know what I mean? Like, they're just like, you all also have to look, play yeah. them. Like, yeah, that's, right. that's the point. If you're doing diegetic music, you have to play it. Right. Like, I, I just, the bit where they're just warming up is just hilarious to me because their, their uniforms, the, the uniforms they're wearing even kind of look like my old band uniform, which is again, very hilarious to me. Uh, I have many stories from my time as a band kid, but not those kind of stories uh, because there were no out gay people in the band. Out being the operative word. <laughs> out being the, I would find out several years later um, that had I been out, which I was not for the entirety of my high school time, uh, and had other people been out uh, that I was not aware of at the time, uh, possibly I would have some more interesting band kid stories. Alas, I do not. There's your fun fact about me for the day. Uh, I use the practice rooms to actually practice. As you should. And not bust through the ceiling like someone else did. <laughs> but we're going to move on from that story. I'm not I'm not going to tell the time somebody fell through the ceiling. During the practicing of the band, Cassian notices Luthen on the street from his hiding place, and Bix lists the procession from her cell. Nurchi meets with ISB agent Korv to discuss a reward for spying, and they stage a fight to maintain his cover. A large crowd gathers in the square with Luthen and Cyril close by. At the hotel, Deidre warns that she wants Cassian alive. B2 begins to lead the procession of the funeral. Corv and Death Troopers lead the pursuit of Cassian, but he flees into a sewer, which leads into the hotel kitchen. At the funeral, B2 begins playing a hollow recording of Marva. She gives a speech to the crowd where she urges them to fight the Empire. That is a massive underselling of that moment, but it's, it effectively gets us from point A to point B. I know. No, I, I mentioned that the music is diegetic. Uh, I, do you know what the word diegetic means, Bradley? Diegetic means that it's happening in the scene and that the characters can hear the music or sounds that are happening. That is, is that a like a very- tech? Is that a good textbook? Like that was I off mean, top of my head. First of all, one hundred percent correct. Second of all, uh, good imitation of me you just did there. <laughs> I was like, that's like, that was off the top of my head. So that was pretty good for that. Was, uh, just... That was a good definition. Yeah. Yeah. Diegetic music is in, in the scene. I, I love, I love when diegetic music happens. Well, I, I, you know, it's kind of like that thing that most TV shows will do is like, sometimes you'll hear the music and you're like, oh, they're just playing a song over the track. And then somebody will bump into the main character and then their headphones will pop out and it's the same right. exact song. Right. So it's like a similar thing, but like in this, we're just genuinely hearing the band play the whole time. Time, and it's really and, nice. And that was recorded on set. Um, right. That was recorded on set. Uh, that was played on set. The, so the actors are hearing it as well. Um, it's just really good. Like from a music composition standpoint and like a soundtrack standpoint, it's really good. Just it, Les Mis, do you remember that Les Mis movie from a couple of years ago where Tom Hooper like insisted upon having them sing on the set? 
Do you remember this? No. It was the the Anne Hathaway, uh, Hugh Jackman, Russell Crowe Les Mis movie. Right. Uh, where uh, Russell Crowe is horribly miscast as Javert. Do you remember this? You don't remember this movie? I've never seen the movie, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah, he insisted that they would sing on set. So I, I was going to make a joke of how, you know, Les Mis could never, never <laughs> do what Andor did. Now that you say that, though, Andor would make a really good broadway play slash musical question mark question mark stop stop Uh, uh. that already exists it's called lameness no it's like the kombucha girl she's it's like uh does it no maybe no (laughs) like we're not we're not quite sure yet we'll we'll see is that what that meme is called i know what meme you're talking about but yeah it's called kombucha girl uh she's really funny if you follow her on social media uh i would love to shout her out i just can't remember her name right now but um she's hilarious congratulations on your meme uh, kombucha girl right i i like that even cassian gets like a little minute to mourn like there's a small shot and again it diego luna does not get a lot of lines in this but he conveys a lot of the acting through his facial expressions and we even see where even cassian kind of takes a quiet minute to mourn for marva uh before he notices that corv and the death troopers are coming and he has to to get out of there and get out of there real quick so he does he does get that which is is very nice um b2 kind of chanting like when they're doing stone and sky you can even b2 is kind of moving in in time to that chanting uh and we even see like bick starting to come back to herself which is something i didn't put together initially when i watched this episode like bix's journey because originally i thought bix didn't do a whole lot in this episode i was like what does she do besides get rescued uh then i thought about it and listened to some other people who had different opinions and i realized that a lot of the episode for bix is her trying to come back to herself right and with support and help she does make that return by the end of the episode uh, but in this scene we're we're starting to see the first bit of that her her reaching out even to the people of Ferrix uh to try to pull herself back from this brink and we see that too that this whole thing is starting to get to to Cyril uh do we think Cyril's maybe gonna like defect to the rebellion in the second season I'm a little confused because he no. can go either way no I I think I I think I know where it's going now and we'll get to it maybe I'll talk about it in our season recap but I okay. I feel like I feel like I know where his storyline's going now once maybe no you know what we'll talk about it when we get to the scene with him and Deidre I think that's where I I can bring okay so remember how I said put a pen in the fact that it's it's dead people that are dispensing words of wisdom so marva actually makes this exact point that she's talking about uh, her whole the beginning parts of her speech are about the dead lifting up the living and taking their wisdom and using it to elevate the people who are still alive uh, which is a theme that of course just runs through this entire episode uh, marva clem and nimic all get moments where they get to to provide some sort of wisdom to the characters from beyond the grave marva literally appears as a giant ghost well i mean it's a hologram but oh, yeah. you get the you get the idea although I thought it was weird. So when did she record this? Because I'm like, she wasn't doing so hot towards the end. So like this had to be a, like she knew like when she needed to record this. It's probably right when Cassian first left. Is probably when, when Cassian this. first left. Yeah. Cause that was months before this. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was at least a month and a half before this. Yeah. So if not, yeah, I just find it interesting. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, no. How many months did he, was he in prison? 
did we say? At least one, but probably two or three. Yeah, he was in for a few, I think. He's been in there a while. Yeah, so anyway. She probably uh, recorded it at the beginning, but she had it, like, ready to go. Right, right. Which I think is interesting. It's almost like somebody who, like, records their, essentially their will, um, like, she, well She recorded advance. her own eulogy. Yeah, it's so weird to She's think like, about. She's like, nobody else is going to do this as well as I'm going to. Yeah, that's kind of funny, actually. Which uh, nobody else could do it as well as she did because Marva Andor uh, is the greatest of all time right. for this fucking speech that she gives the absolute like brilliance of this woman to be like all of Ferrix is going to attend my funeral they're all going to listen to my eulogy why don't we use the eulogy to call them to arms i mean you know what what's the fastest way which is which is brilliant and like a great sort of conclusion to even her character art over the course of the series where she's she's very hesitant in the first few episodes and then she gradually gets her confidence back and now she's like i may be dead but if i wasn't dead i would take a brick to these motherfuckers and that is quickly and <laughs> i chose that, those quickly, words yeah. very very carefully right and i was like She's even getting to Luthen. Like you can you can see Luthen's face mm-hmm. in the episode where when she's talking about there's a rot at the center of the galaxy because Luthen has even kind of lost his way in what he's doing. And him listening to Marva talk about not his grand calculus, not his grand equation, but the real effects on real people seems to even move him. I love this speech. <laughs> like Maybe in my top 10 favorite Star Wars moments, easy. Uh, Marva Andor inciting a riot at her own funeral. Well, also just the tension building that this entire scene has along with the, you know, just just everything that's going on. Like, it's just like a slow, slow build that just inevitably comes to a head right when she just says Empire. Because the audience has figured out what's going on. uh, But when she starts talking about the Empire, it suddenly becomes abundantly clear to everyone in the scene, including Tigo, what's going on. But by the end, it's it's too late. It's too late. Uh, he, He tries to cover B2 up and then promptly becomes the most hated man in Star Wars. Because he just like knocks B2 over. I thought like B2 was gone at that point. I thought he was going to shoot B2, but I think I may be getting ahead in your notes. Captain Tigo upset with the message. <laughs> um, Fucking Tigo. Yeah, I know. Uh, Fucking, no, I... This is, this is how the battle, this is why uh, Robert's rebellion started. This is why that happened. Hmm. It, it it wasn't Lyanna Stark. Uh, it wasn't wasn't any of that. Uh, it was Rigor Targaryen pushed a trash can over, and we got the entire plot of Game of Thrones. Yep, there you go. It takes just the one person to mess it up, mm-hmm. <laughs> especially if that one person is Rhaegar Targaryen, who messed a lot of things up. Captain Tigo upset <laughs> with the message. <laughs> All right, I'm sorry. Me, it's me... so funny to me that we can't get through this. I know. Okay, we got to get through this last please, bit. Of this, please, this proceed is a lot. forward okay. so I can keep talking about this scene. This is all the action stuff, so let me get but through But also this. Okay. leave all this in. Oh, this of course. This is hilarious. Okay, Captain Tigo, upset with the message, tips over B2, angering the crowd as they begin attacking the Empire. Cassian makes his way to Bix and rescues her. As the crowd begins to become unruly, Wilman Pack throws his improvised bomb at the Empire, causing a major explosion when it lands on other explosives. The Empire orders the troopers to open fire on the civilians. Brasso saves Wilman from a pair of stormtroopers. In the chaos, Cinta follows Agent Corv in an alleyway and stabs him. Bix and Cassian make their way through the street 
retreats. Stormtroopers try to stop the Time Grappler from alarming everyone, but to no avail. Deidre is attacked by the mob, but is saved by Cyril, who ducks into a storeroom to save her. Luthen watches the uprising from a distance, and elsewhere, Cinta reunites with Vel. That's a that's a large chunk of the rest of my notes. Okay, yeah. here we go. It was a lot of stuff, so we had to get through it. I mean, it's I, just... I, I have to say this up front of the you just covered about 10 minutes of the episode. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, it was a, the, the major chunk of the action. <laughs> I need to make this clear because I said this on Twitter and I, I, I need to reiterate it here that last week when I said Marva Andor was the first brick at Stonewall. You're right. That was a joke. I did not expect Brasso to actually clock a fascist with Marva Andor's ashes. However, I do think that is what Marva Andor would have wanted. Well, yeah, she got to essentially, not only did she start this rebellion with her speech, she also got to be the first punch, essentially, or the, well, I guess it's not really a punch, it's more of a a hit to the side of the face with a brick, but you know, same sentiment. The but... <laughs> first casualty, because that that was a crack. <laughs> yeah, that that was awesome. That Imperial trooper or whatever does that that skull is not intact anymore. Yeah, <laughs> which good. That's correct. Uh, I also love that. Uh, speaking of guys who are definitely dead, uh, just the move where Cassian like throws the guy on the ground and like shoves the blaster down into him and shoots him to muffle the noise mm-hmm. and like muffles it with his body. Incredible, incredible bit of like fight choreography. Well, and I hope they do more of that in season two because it's the very James Bond esque stuff that we know Cassian is capable of, and so I do want to see a lot more of that moving forward because it's really cool. Yeah, this is the episode two where he really comes into his own, not just as like Cassian, a guy who is surviving, but you look at the difference between like how he acts in this episode and how he acts in like episode three. You know, he's learned over the course of Aldani and Narkina five how to do these things. Right. And so by this episode, he's he's much more strategic. If you remember in episode three, he's running around like a crazy person. But by this one, he's more strategic. He's choosing his moves carefully. Uh, he's improvising fight choreography to prevent himself from being detected it's it's so good remember we talked about last week um where bix like they've gotten it to a point where the threat of violence is more of a useful thing against bix by the empire than the actual violence itself do you remember we talked about that right uh we see we see it in this scene where casting's like there is literally an open door yeah just walk out you just walk out she's like no, they'll get angry. And I think what's important is that Cassian does not drag her from the room, which she's in no state to resist. He could have easily grabbed her and like pulled her out of the room, but he doesn't. He waits until she's sufficiently convinced, which it's after the window blows up <laughs> over them. Right. She's sufficiently convinced that she can go with him. He's not going to force her to go. Right. And I think that's an important detail about her agency in these scenes that he waits for her to agree to go. He stays and is talking to her about Marvel was here. Isn't she great? You know, it's important small moments in these scenes that that you kind of have to look at, pay attention carefully. The bomb goes off. Uh, stormtroopers are are literally like just gunning down uh, unarmed uh, people in the streets. Uh, Star Wars, however, is not political. 
It also gets significantly worse as the scene goes on. Like it starts off with just blasters, which we are pretty much accustomed to in Star Wars, which is not that not that terrible. But then it's... it gets to the heavy armory stuff, and then oh, they're yeah. shooting them with that. And you see like bodies flying, and then you're like, "Whoa, this is getting intense." Allow me to get political for just a minute. It does remind me of scenes I've seen when there's protests, like even here. I live in Los Angeles, and there's a lot of protests in the last couple of years that have happened in Los Angeles. Angeles. And the LAPD is notoriously bad about getting violent with protesters. This reminds me of scenes I've seen of that. Uh, I haven't participated in any of these altercations personally, but I have friends who have. And I've I've seen footage from it. And this reminded me uncomfortably of that, where the stormtroopers are just like firing indiscriminately. Now they're firing blaster shots, uh, as opposed to like firing tear gas and, and rubber bullets, which will still mess you up a lot. But it does remind me a lot of those exact scenes that I see even here in LA. But and, Star Wars is not political. And you know, I wasn't when I saw the he was making the bomb or something, I thought and someone brought this up to me, they thought that that B2 was going to end up being the bomb. And then like, like at the end of her speech or something like that was going to set off the bomb or something like that. So I thought I, I didn't want V2 to explode, but I definitely <laughs> no. thought that was going to happen. I'm glad it didn't, but I thought that was definitely going to happen. Like yeah. he was going to explode or something. Well, I, I like that. It's this, it's this one radicalized kid who's right. upset that his dad died. That's the one to turn this from an altercation to a full blown riot a full-blown yeah. rebellion uh i like that choice because it it makes it more emotional that the reaction of the people of ferrix to suffering under the imperial boot heel is a visceral emotional one it's a powder keg and it's it's not like oh everybody has decided to fight so now we will be perfectly formed rebellion fighters no it's a bunch of people who are very upset emotional they've lost people it just explodes and then literally explodes because of someone who was upset about something the empire did to them i think we can both agree bradley uh that we love a lesbian who solves her problems with a knife i love Cinta more than most characters on this show um only because Cinta is one of the few characters that will just do what they're like say they're gonna do and that's why i love her so much because Cinta's she's like, like i am here to kill fascists right i, and then I don't she stabs do a fascist else. with a knife <laughs> it's so good and i love it because i don't know I know Corv was like suspicious of her, whatever. And then, but does he, did he ever know who she really was? Or was he just kind of like watching her because she was suspicious because she was watching? He doesn't Cassie seem to now. know that she's like in, in like rebellion. She, he doesn't seem to know that. He's just okay. like, why are you following me around? Right. And then she's like, uh, because I have a knife. Yeah, she doesn't even say anything. I fucking love her so much because that's a true assassin right there. She didn't she didn't like talk or monologue or anything like that. Like Corv was trying to do. She was just like, nope, stab. <laughs> <laughs> yep. She's like, oh, oh, I briefly forgot what series I was in and solved my fascist problem the correct way. Right. Uh, by murdering the shit out of it with a knife and dumping the body in a random house. Right. And just shutting the door being like, well, someone will find that later. Later. Yep. Bye. <laughs> That's a later problem. This is somebody else's problem. Uh, Good for her. 
Good for her. Uh, there are there are intercut shots of uh, Deidre out in the riot. And remember I said we would come back to the whole she set up this situation thing. Uh, I do think it is interesting that uh, she is now caught up in the riot that she caused. Right. She wanted something like this to happen because she assumed it would draw Cassian out. And now she is stuck in the middle of it. This is literally a situation of her own making. I also love the time grappler tossing a guy out of the <laughs> towel. Unnecessary, but appreciated for a one hundred percent necessary. <laughs> I I wanted the time grappler to like armor style whack him in the face. You know, that's kind of what I was getting power. from that. Yeah, but no, he just was, kicks him off, which is still yeah. funny. I thought I thought that was going to happen too. I thought he was going to have both of his little hammers and he was going to start you know whacking away at stormtroopers. Like, but I guess they already did that. So I. I, I have let's talk about the Deidre and Cyril scene because I have really complicated feelings about oh this. I have very mixed emotions about the scene but very yeah, mixed go, feelings about this well firstly is I'm I'm re-watching Game of Thrones and I had to separate my feelings about the Deidre getting trampled by the mob scenes in this which are thematically resonant and track with the context of the rest of the show and are literally a situation as mentioned before that she specifically instituted like she she put together this situation to happen uh and is now being trapped in it and then cyril like saving her i felt very weird watching i felt weird but i also knew in the back of my mind that his character has this visceral need to be the hero that he's not because his mother puts him down and everybody else puts him down but he thinks he can achieve all these things because he knows he's better than everybody else and so this is essentially Deidre never gave him the opportunity to show what he was quote-unquote worth um because she kind of brushed him off before and now he essentially well because he showed up to her work and was well, waiting for her out and put his right. hands on her right because like, he's a fucking creep but let's not there are multiple layers to this scene but let's oh, not forget absolutely. he did follow her to work and put his hands on her but yes he was making Making the case in the interrogation room if we want to look at that scene right. that he's very good at like this kind of thing and Something, she sort of yeah. brushed him off right but like what's interesting now is he kind of has set up his own moment of glory or his own thing to be like look i saved you i'm your savior now so theoretically she owes him now which is an interesting is point weird yeah yeah it's and I could see where he he might have taken that angle, but for his final lines in the scene, because I think you're 100% right about Cyril needing to be the hero in his own mind. And I think in his mind, the act of stepping in to save Deidre is enough. And he says, you know, when she's like, I, I guess I think I should thank you. And he's like, oh, you, you, you don't need to. It's a very like, I'm the hero moment. Yeah. And I'm like, it's just enough for me, ma'am. Like, and it, then like, flies off and <laughs> that's literally what he thinks he is right and it's... on it honestly i'm getting also oh i hate to say this because i hate when shows do this i'm getting a romantic vibe I from this I, I hate that i do too and i know it's, it's happening. because of, it's because of the the weird stalking scene yes and that's because why the i weird did stalking scene wasn't here and maybe that's why the weird stalking scene is there 
I think so. Because otherwise I would have looked at this and been like, oh, he saved her from this situation. Like, I could read some romantic overtones if I were the type of person that ships this. Uh, But with the stalking, the context of the stalking scene, I'm like, oh, this is weird and really weird actually right because it's getting to a place where it's almost like he's i don't want to say gaslighting because i feel like people use that word too much but he's essentially reverse psychology her into liking him like he's being like it's it's almost like he's like so desperately needs to be liked yeah that and i think her her reaction to the situation where she almost kind of has to like come down from the massive adrenaline which denise got plays so well just how freaked out and like high on adrenaline deidre is in the scene when she's pulled out of the situation but she kind of comes down and she's like oh you know i i should probably thank you for this uh, since that, you know, saving me from the people who likely would have murdered me was a good thing. Right. And it's like, it's complicated because on the one hand, you know, she shouldn't have needed to have been saved. She's a perfectly competent person. On the other hand, she was getting her comeuppance for the very situation that she caused. And like, on the one hand, I, I don't like that, like, he pointed a gun at her. But I also see that, like, oh, he was making it look like he was capturing her. And I also, I almost wish that, because I watched with the subtitles on, I almost wish the subtitles hadn't revealed in the subtitle that it was Cyril holding the gun. Mm. I think it would have been more effective to me if it, if it wasn't as apparent. But like, really, at the end of the day, I I still have very mixed feelings on this scene. I think it's, I don't think there's anything wrong with the scene's writing, particularly. I have complicated feelings about what is happening in the scene. And multiple people have said, and and I agree to an extent, that I, I don't want this to immediately jump to a year later in the first episode of the next season. And there are a couple now, that would be weird and gross. I... If they're going to go that direction, I feel like there needs to be more growth from the characters. So I'm I'm a little apprehensive. And also, like, the actors have described the two characters as having, like, a meet-cute at one point. I think they might have been joking about this scene. There's a lot going on here. And I don't, I don't know if I like it, necessarily. Yeah. I, I and- understand it, but I... I don't know if I I like it as a direction for where both of these characters because this is the last time we see both of these characters in this episode. Right. And I I mean it was just I I can't I can't erase it from my mind because when I was watching it, they were just their faces were a little too close. They were a little too, too you know what I mean? <laughs> the it was framing a little is a too, little yeah. too uh, it was a little, a little too like, too are they gonna to... kiss? Are they not gonna kiss? Kind Please. of thing. Oh like, god, yeah. I'm so glad they didn't. I I'm I so I, I was did. getting that vibe, and I'm glad they didn't go there. But we'll talk about it in our recap of the season. But I think in we'll talk about the the format of season two. And I think that because of the weird format of season two, it's gonna be we're gonna have a very interesting recap interesting, between yeah, uh, interesting between everything we need to talk about and our our guest that's coming on to uh, to to teach us some things. It's gonna be next episode is probably gonna be banger. That's my hope. I I like that Luthen is is watching the chaos because it was it was on my third watch through that I realized why this scene is here. This is the closest Luthen has gotten to a situation he has directly caused. Right. This is the first time he's ever had to watch it. The first time he was on Ferrix, he inserted himself into a situation that was already happening. He didn't cause it, but he's not involved in directly in Aldani. 
He's not involved directly in the Anto Krieger. Like he's not there when it's happening. This is the first time he's had to sit down and watch it uh, or stand there and watch it. And I think that's an interesting little shot to include. Uh, I also think it's interesting, this final scene between Senta and Vel. And, and, and they really don't get closure this season. I'm curious to see where they go with this. Because they've kind of set up this underlying tension between them. Right. Like, they, I thought they were going to resolve it, but they didn't. I, I was like, oh, clearly Vel, like you said before, Vel is in it one way and Senta's in it another way. And Vel almost resents, like, doing this. In, in a way, because she feels like she's, I, I guess she feels like she's losing Cinta a little bit to yeah, the to the cause. But like, this is this is not really addressed. Like, yeah, it's weird. Vel gets wigged out when Cinta's like, that's not my blood. And then that's like the end. That's the last time we see those two characters. Right. It's like, okay, like, you're not going to tell her whose blood it is. You're not going to tell her what we're happened. Not, we're not going like, to address yeah. this. We're, right. we're not going to have any sort of satisfying narrative conclusion to that nope we're just gonna move on okay at the shipyard helga helps brasso prepare an escape ship cassian safely arrives with bix and cassian tells the group to leave without him and they will reunite soon cassian heads back to town meanwhile on coruscant mothma introduces her daughter to scolden's son and finally on ferrix luthan is preparing to leave and he is confronted by cassian i'm glad they got uh wilma now i thought that was a nice because it yes. would have been really easy for the script to just throw him to the wolves. But again, this is this is the thing about like solidarity and the solidarity the people of Ferrix have is Brasso and then got Wilman out mm-hmm. even after he threw the bomb. Because it would have also been super easy for them to like throw him to the wolves, but they didn't. They got him out too, which I thought was a really nice touch. You know what else I thought was a nice touch is Cassian telling Jesse to climb. You know, I didn't think we were going to get climb in this episode, and then we did. We got it. We got it. There it is. And it's the third time in this season of the show. And what do we call that? Uh, The rule of threes. Yes. Good. Have we talked about Jezzy at all? Because she's fairly prominent in this episode, and I'm just now realizing, have we talked about who's playing her? Oh, we haven't. She's the daughter of Ferex, right? She's the daughter of Ferex. Well, not the daughter of Ferrix, but she is a daughter of Ferrix. The, the main one that we see. Gotcha. Yes. Yeah, she's like Do one of the... Do you want to talk about who's playing? Because uh, we can't get away from the final episode without telling you about at least one actor, although I, I'm, I'm looking at a few more to see if it's worth bringing them up. Um, We could talk about her. Why not? She's featured prominently in this episode. She's very prominent in this episode. Yes. Uh, Pamela Nomvet. I apologize if I pronounced that name wrong. Uh... She is an Ethiopian-born actress who has been in mostly TV. Uh, She was in Gangs of London. Uh, She's in Avenue 5. Yeah, it looks like mostly British television. So that is who is playing uh, Jazzy, who we'll probably see again because she gets out on the ship. Yeah, I like how... So what's interesting about this scene is it kind of solidifies Cassian's, we'll call it, found family, right? So his kind of like group of people that he kind of cares about the most are all his found family together. that he promptly abandoned right but we notice that they're all together and they're all safe and they all escape which is interesting so it's it's nice that he knows where his people are right he knows like okay i'll find you guys one day like or at some point which means we're not he's not going to see them for like five more years uh, <laughs> but still yeah yeah well 
it also leads into this really nice moment with B too, where he's like, you know, take care of Bix. And there's one line uh, B brings up, you always say that, which is an echo all the way back to the first episode when they're having their first conversation. I just had a really weird thought. Oh, please share it with the entire internet. This may be a possibly season two, like, guess, but wasn't, didn't K2 say that he was a reprogrammed? Yeah, no, I... not you too. <laughs> I've been hearing, low. I've been hearing this I don't know, that kind of makes theory sense. for two days. No, I don't think K2 is, is B's program. No, I don't think so, guys. Put a I pin think, in that for another two years, and then we'll come back to it. <laughs> I think no. Bradley thinks yes. In two years, we'll come back to it. Come back to that. I don't know. I just got a weird, yeah, I just got a weird vibe that, like, there's, why else would they even bother introducing him and then just being here? I don't know. Because he's cute. He's a cute dr- show. Moving on. Anyway, uh, Bix completes her own character arc. And also, when we met Bix and Cassian in, in the first episode, uh, they were very distant. Bix doesn't trust him. And then by the end of this episode, she has her faith in Cassian restored. Right. Uh, that she believes Cassian will come and find them. So I thought that was that was nice. Anyway, let's talk about the Mon Mothma scene. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, so the first thing I want to point out is, did you notice the colors that Mon and Lita and Perrin are wearing? Let's see. Red, white, and blue. That must mean, oh my gosh, is Mon Mothma running for president in 2020? I'm just kidding. <laughs> God, she would. I'm just kidding. Uh, no, they're, they're gold and white and blue. Hmm. And we've only ever really seen Mon Mothma in white. Sometimes a blue jacket. She has an orange dress that she wears, but for the most part, we see her in white. And she's wearing blue and white and yeah, gold, which is supposed to clue to the audience in that this is more Chandrillon. Mm, traditional This colors. is more a traditional yeah. Chandrillon dress that she's wearing. Um, so I love that detail. I love that they have them wearing, and they also match Davo Skulden and his wife and kid. Mm, very ceremonial almost, yeah. Very ceremonial. Let's talk about that wife and kid. Okay. They have names. Whoa. I noticed this in the end credits. Uh, the wife is Renai Skulden. The son is Stecken Skulden. That they were actually apparently named. Okay, so that means they might show up. Which leads me to believe that one or both of them may be showing up in season two. That, I mean, since we, I mean, I'll just say it here. We know there's going to be a time jump at some point. That doesn't seem unlikely that at least the son would show up because he'll be more involved with, you know, Lita's, uh, I don't know, her involvement in marriage. Engagement. (laughs) Engagement, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because, yeah, they're only going to be engaged for theoretically a year i mean like you know or however uh, long is 13 they would be engaged for three years three years okay so there's only five years left in the timeline of this show so like mm-hmm. it does make sense that theoretically by the time mon mothma leaves slash is about to leave oh you know, god what if she runs away from her daughter's wedding that's probably the moment she'll use for like cover to oh, like, be, like that. Oh, oh no, no! I've spoken that into existence now. Okay, wait, we can't talk about season two stuff because we're gonna get way off topic. We're but, gonna get yeah. way ahead. Yeah. Um the the kid is played by uh, 
Finley Glasgow, he's literally only been in this. Good for him. Uh, Next. He's not been in anything else. But the wife, Renai Skolden, is being played by uh, Rosalind Halstead. Most importantly for me, she has been in uh, one episode of BBC's Sherlock. Yes, I do think both of those, these people will be showing up in season season two. At the Fair very enough. least, uh, Renai Skolden, most likely. Yeah, I, I definitely see that as being a plot point, at least, for sure. I also want to note something interesting about the last shot is Mon goes through like this whole like face journey, uh, but the camera's not focused on her. We're watching her, but the camera is focused on Lita. Lita is front and center. This is her moment. And yet we, the the audience, visually can't move past Mon and right. the grief that Mon is feeling as she also sells out her daughter. There's an interesting little insert shot of Moss by himself, which is weird. I'm not sure why that's in there. Oh, I did leave that out on accident where he's drinking or something. He's like drinking. The... It's, yeah, it's that, really is, that was weird. weird shot. Yeah, I, yeah, that's probably why I didn't include it. I just didn't even think about it. Um, but it's almost like he's despondent in the fact that I guess Cyril abandoned him, I guess. I think the whole point was that they were kind of buddy, buddy, you know, and then he, at the drop of a hat, abandoned him to go save Deidre, basically, and left him there. I don't know. I don't know how else to read the scene other than, like, because it's not like he was dressed up as a plain clothes person, so it's not like he was working with the Empire, you know, to... Yeah, I'm not sure why these scenes are here, except to just maybe tell us that Mosk survived. Yeah, I guess so. He's just like, yeah, what a day, right? Like, Yeah. I I only have one note for the Cassian being recruited scene because I I do kind of want to let it stand by itself. And that is, I find it really interesting that in Cassian's official file, uh, which has been referenced in this show, it states that he was recruited into the rebellion by General Draven. That is an in-universe official file for Cassian that states that he was recruited by Draven. So the question is, why is the file lying? Is it lying or... What happens between now and the Rogue One era when this file is written that it needed to be changed or altered or Luthen needed to be expunged from it? Well, probably because Luthen never existed. That's what it's going to be, right? Like it's the character of Luthen or the- boring answer. I know it is, but- conspiracy. Well, the conspiracy is that they had to cover up all of his activity as- write it off his other stuff so he never existed axis never existed right it's just a it's just a name it's just an idea it's not a person hmm. that's the i think i think of. something's gonna happen in season two and the rebellion is gonna have to purge him that's that's my theory something bad is gonna happen and that's it right we've we finished the episode that's it roll else. credits nothing else happens nothing except... else is happening uh <laughs> Except somewhere in the galaxy, droids assemble machinery produced by the Narkina 5 prisoners on a firing dish of the Death Star. Dun, dun, dun. I wonder what that could be. <laughs> uh, yeah, I only have two notes and one of them is just holy shit. Oh, I thought your other note was going to be, I've already seen articles on uh, ending of uh, post credit scene of Andor explained. 
I haven't, but I'll bet you someone's going to write that. I swear to God, if somebody tries to write an article on explaining that that. scene. I will link it. I guarantee you someone is going to write the ending scene of Andor. It literally... The post-credit scene of Andor explained. It's like, you don't even need a brain to know, like anything about that post credit scene like it's so blatantly obvious that like they literally focus on the one piece of machinery that they were building in the show and then it's like they zoom out and it's the death star like you only need to know two things one is you need to have watched a new hope and then two watch this fucking show <laughs> and then you can explain what the post credit scene is like it's so i literally so googled post credit scene of andor explain and <laughs> five million results <laughs> yes uh, let's see. Andor ending explained. Andor finale post credit scene explained. God, such clickbait. What was Cassian actually building? It fits into a larger, deadlier puzzle. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna put on blast. Uh, it, it is a deadly puzzle. Andor I'll episode twelve ending and credit scene explained. That's just clickbait for people who want to spoil themselves who never actually watched the episode. So, like, that's all it is. How are you watching Andor and? care enough about that to google it and you don't know what the death start there's only one person i think that's going to be their first or second ever time ever seeing the death star and that's andy from first steps i think they have never seen the death star except Mm. for the end of revenge of the sith they probably don't know what a death star is other than andy right if you care that much just google the death star yeah you could literally look up every scene the death star is in on youtube or something um no but i also looked at the videos and literally the first one is is by like a really fucking awful youtuber of course just and or in credit scene explained i'm like y'all the 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 grift is out in full force here but i do want to point out though that this is a very interesting moment in the timeline right so we're seeing the Death Star in at the whatever stage it is in completion. And clearly right. it's pretty much done minus what looks like the firing dish. But then we see in uh, Rogue One where they literally put the dish into the Death Star at one point. So it's interesting how it lines up just timeline wise because we know that the next bit of Andor is going to take place over three years or so. So it's going to uh, be it's over it's over four or four over years. Four I'm sorry. Years. Yeah. So it's going to be weird. Like how that's how far along they are. Like, I don't know. It's just interesting. Uh, I, I do want to point out um, the question got asked. Uh, what planet uh, is is that underneath the Death Star? Like, because clearly that's not Geonosis. Clearly it has been moved. And when this question was asked of me, I went on a long tangent about how it could be a planet called Despair, uh, which was the planet that the Death Star was constructed over in Legends. It was a prison planet. It was also the first weapons test of the Death Star in Legends. Very long, boring uh, explanation. Uh, Someone uh, in the Divas Discord turned on the descriptive audio and listened and was like, yeah, that's Scarif. Oh, that's Scarif. That's Scarif. Uh, It's just in the descriptive audio. This is what I like about the Divas Discord is somebody had the foresight and just, well, no, I just watch the scene with descriptive audio and see what the planet they describe. What, yeah, what they tell you. It's Scarif. Which, okay, that makes They're, sense. It's over Scarif. So that is uh, that is the end of Andor. Bradley, what are your final thoughts on episode 12 of Andor? Um, final thoughts are, you know, this was a very exciting conclusion to what we 
didn't think was going to be a interesting show or like something that people cared about so much. Um, I actually really liked this arc. Uh, I thought it was really um, building and it, it came to a head at the end and it was really nice. And I don't know, I liked all the characters coming together and it really started to make sense of where people are going um, into season two and all that kind of stuff. Um, I will say that this show knows that it's getting a season two. Um, that's my one gripe about this episode is that because of the way that they've kind of left us on cliffhangers for certain characters and not even in a cliffhangery kind of way, more of just a, well, you'll get another scene with them immediately in the first episode of season two to explain the Which rest. They've of already this. started shooting. They've right. They started a couple of days ago. I think on the 21st, they started shooting. Yeah. So it, I, I think it suffers a little bit from knowing it has a season two, but it also, I think it was an exciting season finale. I think it definitely worked as a season finale and it connected well with the beginning of the episodes um, that kind of concluded into this. What about you? Yeah, I I thought it was going to be a challenge uh, with this show putting out banger episode after banger episode after banger episode. They were all incredible, zero misses. I was kind of worried that the finale wasn't going to bring this to an adequate conclusion uh, because there's sort of a, a a temptation to power creep here in a way of of you want to make each episode bigger and more, more flashy than the last one. And what this did really well was that it, it brought everything back down to Ferrix. So we escalated through Aldani and through Narkina 5, and then we brought it all down to Ferrix. And rather than like try to be big, what it did was be emotional with characters that we actually cared about. Uh, like we didn't even talk about Xanwen dying, uh, but that was very sad that, yeah. that he died. Uh, and like you felt that even though you'd only seen the guy a few times, because by this point, they worked really hard to make you understand why the galaxy is the way it is, why casting is the way it is, but they also spent a lot of time on Ferrix really fleshing it out and making it feel like a, a lived place with people that are just like your neighbors, that are just like the people down the street from you, that are just like the purse people you see at the convenience store when you, you go in to buy a soda. And like, I thought that this episode did an absolutely fantastic job of bringing that all to a head. A really emotional final episode, incredible, can't believe I have to wait two years for another episode. Uh, but really this, this was everything that I wanted in this show. It was, you know, my, my history nerd brain was loving it. My politics brain was loving it. My Star Wars brain was loving it. This, this show is absolutely incredible. Uh, absolutely loved it. Uh, and this episode was a really nice cap to that. Alrighty. So the plan is next week we will do our retrospective. Uh, I have confirmed. Uh, so we are, Fingers crossed, knock on wood, nothing goes wrong. Uh, we are going to have a guest on our retrospective to talk to us about. Uh, you may have noticed I have not been bringing up a lot of history. This is deliberate. I have been waiting to get someone who's more qualified than me on to explain that stuff. Thank God. <laughs> so you get to listen to someone who isn't me explain that. Uh, and we will retrospective the entire season, which is very exciting. Then we are going to do kind of a mini break. Uh, so we we are not taking a break for the holidays. We are going to plow right on through. Absolutely not. Christmas. Dude, no, no. Star Wars doesn't sleep and neither do we. But what we are going to do is we are going to do many episodes covering Tales of the Jedi. 
So we're going to go through the six Tales of the Jedi episodes that released, uh, and that's going to get us all the way to the Bad Batch. There will also be a bonus episode in there. I do not wish to reveal what the bonus episode is yet. I will Ooh. say that everyone should uh, watch Willow streaming on, uh, what did you say, November 28th? What did we say at the uh, top 30th. of this meeting? November 30th. Everyone should go and watch Willow on November 30th on Disney+. Plus. That's all I'm going to say about that. Uh, and then after that, after that, we get to take a break, right, Bradley? Absolutely not, because <laughs> Bad Batch comes along. Yep, and then it's on to Bad Batch Season 2. Fuck me. Oh God, Lord so have mercy. Star Wars. I don't know how Hang we're going to be able to do it. Hang on, somebody did a list. Let me pull up my Twitter, because uh, somebody did a list of all the Star Wars coming next year. Hang on, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this out for you, Bradley, of everything that people can look forward to. Oh, God. In the next year. So we get Bad Batch Season 2, Mandalorian Season 3, Vision Season 2, Skeleton Crew, uh, also Ahsoka. Yeah, those those would be the ones we're going to cover yeah. on the show. Oh, you know what? It'll probably take the whole year to do. It'll probably take the whole year. Because we're not even probably going to get to Mando until after we're done with Bad Batch. Yeah, I don't know. Mando they will better be done be nice. by the time we get to Mando. <laughs> they better be nice think to about us. It? Well, you know, when you think about it, it's thematic. The last two Mando seasons we did That's were true. retrospective. So yeah. it's it's thematic that we do. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. We don't we'll know see anything because there's no fucking schedule. Of course not. There's, well, it's being mildly unfair. We know when Bad Batch is coming out, we think. Possibly. 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 And we know how many episodes possibly are coming out on the first day. We don't know. Oh, I mean, we don't get, see, we that's don't. why, like, you know, it ruins the whole schedule. Anyway, moving on. What schedule? Half our fucking pre-meeting is schedule. I have looked at that goddamn schedule podcast document more than I've looked at my personal calendar. Bradley, go ahead and run the socials. I, I think we're done. I think we're done here. Thank you for listening to Gold Squadron Gaze. Did Charles fuck something up? Send us a message at goldsquadrongaze at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at goldsquadgaze. Follow us on Instagram and TikTok at goldsquadrongaze. Subscribe to us on YouTube at goldsquadrongaze, where we post the podcast as well as exclusive content. Please join us next week and every week for more of Gold Squadron Gaze. In the Sherlock episode, it is implied that she's a dominatrix. She is a dominatrix, but it's implied that she's like one of her clients is Kate Middleton. And I think Rosalind Halstead might be playing. This is a really off topic, by the way. <laughs> oh, no, I'm completely wrong. That was a complete digression. That was. Uh... Uh, that did lead me to explain <laughs> that it is implied that Kate Middleton is in <laughs> BBC Sherlock.